First today, to the backdrop to Minister Claire O'Neill's big announcement yesterday of a major new cyber security strategy for Australia. Because Australians have had a massive wake-up call this year with the personal data of at least 9 million people stolen in cyber attacks uh, on two of the country's biggest companies. The cost to those people, both financial and in other ways, could take many years to be revealed as criminals start to use that stolen information. But the Medibank and Optus hacks could just be a taste of what's to come. One thing's become abundantly clear, Australia is drastically behind where we need to be in protecting people's personal data. Where are we falling down? Well, for more, I'm joined by Dr Jeff Foster, who's an Associate Professor in Cybersecurity Studies at Macquarie University in Sydney. Hello there and welcome. Hi, Geraldine. Thanks for having me. Look, uh, we wanted a real update at this end of the year on on what does come next. And and then, you know, the Minister outlined these very big plans. We counted 10 federal government agencies with some regulatory oversight around data protection and cybersecurity. So it's a very complex picture. Is that part of the problem? Yeah, to some extent it is. Our, our approaches to data protection have been a bit piecemeal, where we keep updating the Privacy Amendment Act from 1900-something. Uh, we, we have a variety of different acts that have been put into place for very specific sectors, uh, such as the Critical Infrastructure Act and, and uh, other ones for other government organizations. And it gets very piecemeal. We don't have anything along the line similar to GDPR, uh, or any of the other many data protection bills that have been passed in other countries since then. So we're kind of all over the place in terms of trying to figure out what a company needs to do and how they should behave. And in this new plan that's being outlined, well, she, she's she got the review on to, to have a big new plan. And speaking extremely strongly, I must say, at the press club this week, um, in a regulatory sense, what's been the fallout from the Optus and Medibank data breaches? Well, I think it's 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 been a good wake up call. That's certainly uh, a good thing for the government here. We've been a bit bit lax uh, in terms of speed for for increasing our cybersecurity regulations and policies. Uh, what's going to happen though it was kind of unclear from what uh, Claire O'Neill has said. She's given some great ideas and put a, a motion in to start. So, in terms of what those regulations and policies are going to look like a year down the line from now, we we don't really know yet. Uh, Started off with a good setting up a good board. Uh, Rachel Falk, who's brilliant, is going to be on that board along with a former head of Telstra and uh, uh, somebody from the Air Force as well. So it'll be interesting to see what they come up with, but they're going to need to move fast. Well, how fast? Uh, give us a sense, please, of, of why we're in this situation. We seem so far behind. I haven't heard really a good explanation. Well, there's not a great explanation on this, uh, other than the fact that there's a lot of pieces together that make us good targets for criminal organizations. We Australia is a lucky country. We've got a lot of money. Our organizations have a lot of money. They have cyber insurance that they might use to pay out for ransomware payments and a, a lack of good regulation for years. That means our data are sitting there oftentimes uh, unencrypted on servers that can be easily addressed. So it, it just makes a, a few pieces that makes us a pretty good target. And as soon as that came to light with Medibank and Optus as well, it just starts picking up steam uh, as more and more criminals go, oh, look, Australia's a good target. The EU's data protection laws seem to be the gold standard here. That's been in place for over four years now. Mm-hmm. And that very much puts the burden on companies to justify their data protection regimes. 
what makes that set of laws so effective? And should they be the model for us, in your view? There, so they're becoming the gold standard for for all of the new data protection models that are coming out. Something like seventeen countries have passed some now. Uh, they're they're good for keeping information in one condensed area, and yes, putting that penalties onto the organizations and making the organizations show and demonstrate that they've taken proper measures rather than somebody having to come in and figure out if they've made a mistake. And it makes it really important in terms of taking ownership over how those data are kept and thought about. And we don't really have a lot of that, and we still don't really have a lot of that, even in the privacy protection uh, amendments that just went through. Those are more about, can we find companies if we can prove negligence? GDPR has a lot more of you companies need to be considering, do we need to have these data? What do we have to hold on to? Is there some justification to holding on to it? And so that that kind of stopped things like having uh, eight-year-old personal identifying information sitting on a server somewhere, or at least should reduce it. Right. And who governs that? There's clearly a lot of regulations, but they're interesting regulations by the sound of you, a bit like the APRA ones apply to, to banks and insurance companies, mm-hmm. where you, it's, a, it's an, a, an effort to get them on the front foot. They've got to preempt, uh, in a way, uh, good um, conduct and prudential conduct. Yeah. And it's again, we've got lots of industries with these very unique independent ones that are a bit all over the place. So trying to get anything to fit together winds up being much more vague and the wording in these things become quite vague as well as a result. Uh, so when it comes down to, to who has actually got to enforce these things, we look at GDPR that's spread out between the different countries uh, within GDPR. So they didn't actually have an enforcement agency too well set up because it's got to be enforced in every individual country. But we'd have something similar here. We've got ACSC uh, and ACS in a variety of places that can actually... What, what's that acronym, please? Uh, sorry, the Australian Cybersecurity Centre oh, oh. uh, that could be responsible for verifying and holding on to information that gets verified. Right. So what I'm trying to get at is... Um, I would have thought different country, different companies have different needs. It's trying to get a uniformity here, a uniformity of sort of behaviour and anticipation. That's what we clearly have been lacking. Yeah, and 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 again, that's a, that's a regulation and policy that helps push companies to say we we need to we have a cost benefit analysis in our boardroom at some day that says you know the cost of us losing these data is going to be too expensive. We need to better secure them. And and that's what's kind of missing in on that policy and regulation. So there's there's a there's more recent ones have, have come out uh, in the last week with up to $50 million fines to companies for poorly handling data, which is a great addition to the regulation that came out after Optus uh, with a push by Claire O'Neill. So those kinds are, are good starts in there. But it's, again, a lack of what GDPR has in terms of definitions of what kind of data is important, right. how it needs to be held and how it needs to be policed. So it's the precision of spelling all this out that they've done. Yes. Uh, yeah. How is corporate Australia responding to all of these questions? Is there enough pressure, do you think, on company boards to address cybersecurity? It's increasing. Uh, and I think, the, like I said, the latest amendment to the Privacy Act that allows up to a $50 million fine to companies is a good pressure to get boards to start paying attention. And the visibility of Optus and Metabank that has happened lately has really started to push a number of boards into really taking this a lot more serious and going through and doing things like tabletop wargaming so that they can prep for, if this occurs to us, how are we going to respond? How are we going to notify our customers? How are we going to recover? Those types of things are starting to increase 
a lot because of the visibility of these most recent attacks, uh, but also because of these increases in penalties that they have to face. Yeah, well, that'll be a whole new sort of regime of reporting to boards, won't it? And there'll have to be really new structures set up to make sure that, a bit like Austrac has forced on people about money laundering. Yes, yeah. Well, when you when a lot of times that the, the cybersecurity decisions of the size of a chief information security officer goes to a board and says, well, we need to do X, Y, and Z, but it's going to cost this much money, require this many more staff. And boards do a cost-benefit analysis and figure out what is the cost if we get hacked versus what's the yearly cost of, of uh, increasing our cybersecurity. And oftentimes it adds up to being, we'd rather take the penalty. Yeah, there is so a risk this, analysis. Yeah, so um, hopefully the increase will change that. How do you balance, though, the responsibility of companies or agencies to keep data safe and that of staff or contractors or, were, uh, uh, you know, or whatever if the hack comes from a staff member behaving in a certain way? I mean, that's another permutation of this, isn't it? Sure. Uh, whether, you, whether that's from accidents or from intra- insider threats, stealing data and giving out information, those both occur. Uh, and there should be some accountability because there needs to be some bare minimum uh, monitoring of staff in terms of behavior analytics. Uh, we do that a lot already uh, because if uh, an attack occurs, so somebody clicks on a link inside of an email and malware gets on their computer, it starts looking like their account is running PowerShell commands and doing weird things that a staff member wouldn't usually do. So they do monitor that behavior uh, in terms of identifying when attacks occurred from outside. So they should be monitoring that for internal staff as well. Some of it you can't prevent. Uh, insider threats are the least common attacks that occur. They are the most damaging attacks that occur, though. Mm. Uh, so they're because they're really difficult to catch beforehand. They get caught a lot afterwards because insiders don't tend to be the most um, a bit more opportunistic as well. But but they do a lot of damage and they're hard to catch in advance. So as long as they're doing some bare minimum, but these will always continue to some extent. You'll, you'll never completely cut it off. Cutting off all cyber attacks is is similar to saying we're going to stop all crime. It's just you can reduce it, but that's about it. One of our texters has come in with an interesting observation. If the CIO, the chief information officer, has paid a fraction of the pay of the CFO, I think this person knows what they're talking about, head of sales, head of division, etc., is not Mm -hmm. on the board and has a much smaller budget, is it any wonder uh, companies are easy cyber crime targets? Yeah, and it's an excellent point, and 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 there's there's lots of reasons behind that, right? Your your chief technology officer, your chief financial officer, those are all positions where their job is to make more money for the company, and everything they do should be reducing costs and increasing sales or whatever the company is doing. The chief information security officer has a completely different one. Their job is to reduce the number of cyber incidents for the minimum amount of money possible, and so they do wind up getting paid less. They're the first head that rolls in a cyber attack, even unpreventable ones, it's a tough role to be in. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, what about the ordinary citizen in, in all this, if I could ask it like that? Does there need to be some, uh, again, regulated remedy or compensa- compensation paid if you're the victim of a hack, particularly a hack from a company that has not taken all of these uh, prudent, prudent um, ch- uh, moves? Sure. Well, there's a couple of things. Taking prudent moves or not, there's uh, some precedent, some idea that if your personal identifying information is, is stolen, such as it was with Optus and with Metabank, whether or not some form of credit monitoring should be paid for by those companies. And I think Optus has has taken a good step in paying for some of that. 
Although they only really, I think they only paid for the people whose ident- information has already been leaked onto the net, not the ones that were stolen. Uh, so there's some good reason behind that. People shouldn't be expected that every company that has their data, which sometimes they didn't give it to, it's you give your data to one company and then sell it on to another one. Uh, whether or not that kind of credit monitoring should be paid for or a change of identifying documents, that's, that's I think, a great idea. When it comes to, to financial, there's always, if somebody's mishandling your data and you can prove negligence, there's always the opportunity to sue somebody in there. Problems is when they can't prove negligence. Can we really hold companies accountable for uh, being attacked when we can't prevent all attacks? As much as we want to think what we can, mm. these, these are these are criminals. So if you can't prove negligence, whether or not there should be a monetary compensation is, I think, a bit of a stretch. Yeah, I think it would, uh, up for debate. Really hurt companies. And, yeah. and look, another sort of somewhat um, um, prosaic part of all of this, uh, the after Optus and Medibank, the federal government established a joint Australian Federal Police and Australian Signals Director ASD mm-hmm. task force to find hackers. But I understand the biggest problem is people, yeah. just finding trained people, sufficient people to, to, to start working in this area. Yeah, well, there's two levels on that. When it comes to the ASD and AFP uh, joint task force, the finding 100 people is because can, you can find 100 people in cybersecurity who have these skill sets, but finding 100 people who can have the skill set and can pass the security clearance and have the right aptitude and <laughs> attitude for intelligence work uh, and are willing to take a job that's probably a lot less pay than they would make in in, in industry. It's, it's going to be hard stretch to find 100 people. They'll find them. It'll just take quite a while to do so. To work in the national interest. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, broadly speaking, we, there's, we're, there is a big shortage of cybersecurity professionals within Australia. We've, um, mm. We're you know, scaling up, especially now after Optus and Metabank, a lot of companies are starting to scale up and you're seeing a lot more job ads coming out. Uh, it's going to be difficult to place that many people that quickly. Yes. Very interesting. Um, thank you again for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Dr. Jeff Foster, Associate Professor in Cybersecurity Studies at Macquarie University. Expect to hear more of all of that next year. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.